Well, Luke, I don't know if you're a subscriber to the Michael and Us Patreon, but there's some interesting content up there right now. <laughs> I mean, you say that as a joke, but believe it or not, I'm, I'm not actually a <laughs> subscriber because I've never felt the need to contribute to my own podcast. <laughs> Your girlfriend's a subscriber, though, right? That's that's awfully nice. So something from that's right. Something from the Savage household is making its way in. Uh, <laughs> mine, mine is not. Anyway, some of our uh, exclusive Patreon episodes include discussing the new James Bond 007 adventure, No Time to Die. Almost forgot what the movie was called. A movie you won't find discussed anywhere else. <laughs> we talked about the classic pro wrestling documentary Beyond the Mat. We looked back at the career of George Carlin to see, does he hold up? We talked about the Netflix documentary Voyeur. And recently, we had a powwow on the bad art friend phenomenon. Oh, and how could I forget? Last Patreon episode, or a recent one, was about Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park, for God's sake. (laughs) And in addition to an extra episode every week, uh, we've also got a lot of bonus content. So we've got interviews with all kinds of interesting people. We just put up my recent discussion with Robert Fitzpatrick, who's an expert on pyramid schemes and multi-level marketing. We recently featured an episode in which I talked to the Oscar-winning documentary filmmaker Alex Gibney and the investigative journalist David Sirota about their new series, Meltdown. I talked about beautiful boaters with uh, the historian Patrick Wyman and a recent piece he wrote for The Atlantic about the influence of local gentry in American politics. All kinds of fun stuff there at patreon.com slash Michael and us. If you like the regular episodes, check us out on Patreon. Well, welcome to Michael and Us proper. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. I was remembering today, I had been reminded of the Tom Cruise couch jumping incident from the year 2005. Needs no introduction. I don't need to tell (laughs) folks what the Tom Cruise couch jumping incident was. Will Will coming in guns blazing off the top of this one. And it occurred to me because I was, I think I heard it on a podcast, I want to say. I heard it somewhere. I might have heard it on a YouTube video. Just somebody ambiently mentioning the Tom Cruise couch jumping thing. Which goes to show you what a seismic event it was. It was like one of probably the two culture-related things people were talking about. No, you know what? Forget about culture. One of the two things people talked about in 2005. (laughs) It wasn't an election year. I feel like it was a slow politics year. So it was Tom Cruise jumping on the couch. I cannot tell you anything else that happened in 2005. Folks, write in. Let us know if anything else happened. And it's endured all these years just as a signifier. We all know what it is. We all know what it means. It's kind of funny because it's a bit of a nothing incident. I mean, when you look at it in the cold light of day, when you think of the high stakes 24-hour social media cycle we're in today, celebrities are making fools of themselves all the time. I don't know if the Tom Cruise couch jumping incident would register quite the same way or with quite the same intensity. I was trying to figure out why this is. Some of it, I think, is the fact that this was a few years before social media, right? Like now, if Tom Cruise jumped on the couch, 
it would be replaced within a day or two by some other incident, some other huge thing. Uh, and then that would fade out and then something else. But without social media, without this, I mean, people used to complain about the 24-hour news cycle on like CNN. But with social media, I mean, w- without it, you basically had a couple of celebrity things every year. And those were the big celebrity things. Well, the one before that was the uh, Ashley Simpson lip sync thing, which was what on Jimmy Fallon or it was on some late night show. It was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And then a year after the, the big things in 2006, again, folks, write in if you can think of other ones. But it's uh, Michael Richards at the Laugh Factory and Mel Gibson getting pulled over in Malibu. Those were your two things in 2006. And after a while, I mean, I was just reminded today that the star of the upcoming sequel to Black Panther is an anti-vaxxer. And that just feels like, you know, one of those like kind of minor things. It's just like a thing that I see come up every now and then. But if there was a comparable situation in 2005, that would have had the potential to be the celebrity thing that year. Uh, Oh, you know what another good one was? 2004 or maybe it was 2003, the Janet Jackson Super Bowl incident. I was just about to bring that up. So huge. That was the whole year. Oh my God. Well, and see, I think the (laughs) process around these things, like the process through which the culture metabolizes them, uh, I think it hasn't changed at all. I think the exact process uh, still occurs. I just think it's been sped up by a factor of about, you know, a million times. Like the Tom Cruise couch jumping incident, you know, I remember that being memed out over kind of six months. I don't even remember if the term meme had entered common parlance in the mid 2000s, but I remember months after downloading a clip of that uh, from like Kazaa or LimeWire or something like that, you know, at like 0.3 kilobytes a second or whatever, you know, people endlessly edited that video and parodied it. But the one I downloaded, someone had just edited in uh, lightning like the Emperor shoots out in Return of the Jedi. And so Tom Cruise appears to be, you know, zapping Oprah with the dark side of the force or whatever. I'm glad you said all that because I was trying to remember how the meme spread. Like what were, like without Twitter, without Facebook, what were the ways that the couch jumping incident managed to keep replicating itself in culture for a whole year? Well, it was much, it was much slower. I think it played out on internet forums and blogs and stuff like that. But of course, everybody's bandwidth was much smaller. So literally the process by which you could, you know, upload things and share them was was much slower. Obviously, the networks through which they were shared were much more diffuse as well. But now, uh, you know, if any if anything like that happens, it's furiously memed for a few hours, maybe for a whole afternoon. But I'm sure you've had the experience where you kind of catch wind of something like that, uh, maybe the day after it broke. And then you spend, you know, five or six minutes trying to craft a joke out of it. And then you eventually give up because you're like, oh, that is so like yesterday. Yep. Sad but true. (laughs) Now, I posed this query on Twitter earlier today, and I want to give a shout out to my pal Mitch, who replied, the couch jump was a crack in the hyper normalized media landscape. Now the landscape is all cracks. (laughs) I want to entertain this for a little bit because back when Tom Cruise jumped on the couch, there was quite a bit more control of the media and the media was still quite a bit more centralized. 
the Oprah Winfrey show was a bigger thing. Uh, I mean, she doesn't even have a show anymore, but you know what I mean? Like the force of an institution like the Oprah show was a bigger thing. Tom Cruise himself was a bigger thing. Both these things very rigorously stage managed and both of them uh, existing in a reality apart from ours. Like the idea of talking to Tom Cruise was unfathomable for a guy like you or me. Now we can ride along with Tom Cruise when he goes to see Tenet. Fucking Timothy Chalamet has like Twitter and you can you can at reply to him and maybe he'll retweet you. I mean, it's it's very different. Anyway, I think I think we as a culture have grown more uh, sophisticated around the like celebrity industrial complex in the 15 years since then because media has become so decentralized and because social media, you know, this this great big speaker's corner that we've erected has poked all these holes in it. And, and now it's true. The, the landscape is all cracks. You're on social media and Tom Cruise is jumping on a couch every day, all day on some account. First of all, thanks for coming to my Legends Ball with Katie. Was that the best fun? Was that? Yes, yes. What has happened to you? Well, today I was revisiting uh, a section in the 2016 book by Thomas Frank, Listen Liberal. There are a lot of memorable parts of this book, but there's a chapter called The Blue State Model that's always uh, stuck in my mind. I think about it a lot because I spend so much time writing about the Democratic Party and because there are, you know, so many cases where Democrats run on things they don't implement. This same argument recurs over and over again, you know, and you're seeing it right now with the reconciliation bill and the kind of massive climb down that's happened over the past, you know, six or seven months around what was ostensibly Joe Biden's agenda. So, you know, the drill, folks, here we are again. Uh, There's a Democratic majority unified uh, control of the U.S. federal government and uh, doesn't look like we're getting a second new deal after all. But so the argument you often hear in these uh, in these situations is that, you know, Democrats would do all of this stuff, right? If uh, if it wasn't for the obstructive character of American political institutions, if it wasn't for the Senate being uh, so overpowered, uh, where, you know, a few members can hold up your entire agenda, if it wasn't for the fanaticism of the Republican Party, Democrats could do all the things that they that they consistently say they want to do. Now, this chapter in Thomas Frank's book, takes this on directly. Uh, He writes, when you press Democrats on their uninspiring deeds, their lousy free trade deals, for example, or their incomprehensible Wall Street reform legislation, when you press them on any of these things, they reply automatically that this is the best anyone could have done. After all, they had to deal with those awful Republicans, and those awful Republicans wouldn't let the really good stuff through. They filibustered in the Senate. They gerrymandered in the congressional districts. And besides, it's hard to turn an ocean liner. Surely you don't think the tepid to lukewarm things Clinton and Obama have done in Washington really represent the fiery democratic soul. So what Frank does is he looks at individual states where Democrats have veto-proof majorities. And then he looks at the actual policy outcomes in those states. Now, I think of this chapter often, but uh, the occasion for thinking about it again this week was a very good video put out by The New York Times. It was a video essay called Blue States, You're the Problem, done by Johnny Harris and Benjamin Applebaum, who people will remember of You Worked for a Company That Was Fixing Bread Prices fame. 
I was very impressed with this video. They basically adopt the same uh, kind of line of inquiries as Thomas Frank did in his book. And they basically take passages from the Democratic platform, the 2020 Democratic platform, and then they contrast them with outcomes in places where Democrats face essentially no uh, obstruction at all. Uh, and the case studies are really interesting. So for example, if you look at the Democratic platform, what it says about housing, it says housing in America should be stable, accessible, safe, healthy, energy efficient, and above all, affordable. No one should have to spend more than 30% of their income on housing. So families have ample resources left to meet the, uh, their other needs and save retirement. So that, that sounds pretty good. But then they look at California and they find that despite massive population growth over the last 10 years, the number of housing permits issued is absolutely slowed to a crawl. Uh, and the reason for this is that nimbyism has essentially become the law of the land. Municipal zoning laws have essentially been rigged to favor construction of expensive, low-density housing. Uh, so it's very difficult to build higher-density, affordable housing. So there just are not enough homes for people, and the homes that do exist are way too expensive for, for most people to afford. And they have an incredible case study of city council in Palo Alto uh, voting to take, I think it was... I want to say a two acre piece of land. Maybe it was slightly bigger than that. Just a tiny little slice of land. And the council decided to rezone this part of Palo Alto to build a 60 unit high density affordable housing complex for seniors. And the local residents put forth a measure to overturn this uh, and it passed. So no affordable housing was built in this tiny plot of land in Palo Alto. Um, so that's one of the case studies. The one that I think fascinated me the most was one that taught me something I didn't know at all, which is that, uh, and this one was about Washington State. Um, now, if you look at the Democratic platform, what it says about taxes, uh, there's a line which says, our tax system has been rigged against the American people by big corporations and their lobbyists and by Republican politicians who dole out tax cuts to their biggest donors while leaving working families to struggle. Now, if you look at Washington State, uh, you'll find that the tax system, and I did not know this, the tax system is the most regressive in America. It's even more regressive than Texas's. So if you are in the bottom 20% of income in Washington State, combined state and local taxes, you're gonna be paying 18% of your income in taxes. If you are part of the top 1% of income, you're gonna be paying 3% uh, of your income in taxes. I mean, the mind absolutely boggles. Uh, there's some other stuff in the video about uh, school segregation and things like that. It's very well done, but I wanted to bring it up just because I think it is always a very useful exercise to look at these states, you know, these states like New York and California uh, that are really the heartlands of American liberalism, places where Democrats govern without much or without any obstruction. You look at these places and you can see that in many ways they are the center of the housing crisis. They are places where inequality is persistently on the rise. They're places dominated by party machines that actively work to elide any kind of uh, insurgent challenges and to keep more progressive and left lawmakers out of office. The issue in the Democratic Party is not fundamentally that Democrats are not able to do the things that they would like to do. It's that the, the leadership of the Democratic Party doesn't want to do any of those things to begin with. And so the disjuncture you find between the rhetoric you'll see in the Democratic platform and the kind of things Democrats actually do when they govern unobstructed, that represents a foundational contradiction in you know the whole modern project of the Democratic Party. And, you know, here I actually disagree a little bit. You know, I would politely dissent from the uh, kind of conclusion in this New York Times video, because basically the conclusion is that affluent liberals in blue states are not living their 
values. And I agree, I think there's something to that insofar as they're not living by their professed values. But I think the actual issue here is that they're living their values all too well. And that when you look at New York and California and places like that, you're really seeing the true face of modern liberalism. And it's one that is uh, largely uninterested in inequality of any substantive kind. Well, I have seen the true radical face of modern liberalism, and his name is Tony Blair. (laughs) He is one of the two heroes of the 2006 film The Queen. Good evening, ma'am. I'm sorry to disturb, but it's the Princess of Wales. Why? What's she done now? I have some very sad news to bring you. Diana, Princess of Wales, has died after a car crash in Paris. Prime Minister Tony Blair is about to make a statement. Princess Diana touched the lives of so many others. She was the people's princess. No member of the royal family will speak publicly about this. Diana's no longer a member of the royal family. What are you talking about? Charles, this is a private matter. We do things in this country quietly with dignity. Will someone please save these people from themselves? Questions are being asked about why the Queen hasn't addressed her subjects at this time of national grief. The Prime Minister for you, ma'am. You've seen today's papers. 70% of people believe that your actions have damaged the monarchy. Who does he think he's talking to? So I just want to say off the top here uh, that I loved watching this movie you know, genuinely, uh, doing this podcast for so many years has really addled my brain such that, you know, any movie, whether it's good or bad or middle brow, and this one is, you know, solidly middle brow, but any movie (laughs) that serves you pure, uncut ideology on a platter uh, just really does it for me. And boy, did this movie do it for me. Yeah. um, So this is another one that I saw theatrically. (laughs) I was there opening weekend, folks. That's the kind of 17-year-old boy I was. I was catching up on the Oscar contenders. And I just want to tell you, when I was 17, I loved it. Thought it was really entertaining. And now, uh, 15 years later, or however long it is, uh, I was going to say I still think it's entertaining, but I would amend that by saying, what point is being entertaining if it's at the service of this? (laughs) This is... This is dog shit, this movie. <laughs> My brain is poisoned by so many like layers of irony now from doing this podcast that I can no longer gauge uh, whether my enjoyment of something like this is earnest or not. But I definitely know that I enjoyed watching it. It's very professional. Like It really moves at a good clip. You got some really good actors. It's incredibly easy to watch in the sense that you do not have to do any work at all watching this movie. It holds your it holds your hands so much. It's like the characters are all just speaking. They're just stating the themes. <laughs> They're just stating uh, the ideas of the movie. And when you leave this movie, what is there to talk about? When you're having your drink afterwards, what can you possibly say except say, I agree with the thing that they said in the movie, which you already heard. Yeah, both parties in this movie, you know, the, the Queen on the one hand and Tony Blair on the other, you know, they're both surrounded by handlers who are less people than they are conduits for expository dialogue. Well, they need somebody to talk to. When they're delivering all this exposition, it has to be delivered to a person. (laughs) They can't just speak into the camera. Now, this movie is the second in a trilogy of kind of uh, Tony Blair New Labor movies written by Peter Morgan. You'll notice that this episode is The Gnome in the Garden Part 2, 
That's because all the way back in episode 153, uh, which we recorded in May of 2020, we watched the third film in the series, The Special Relationship, where Dennis Quaid uh, plays Bill Clinton and uh, Michael Sheen, as he does in this movie, plays Tony Blair. I guess at some point we'll go back to the first movie and do The Gnome in the Garden Part 3, even though it's, you know, the first movie in the series. I've seen that one, and actually uh, that one was my favorite. That one's about the Tony Blair-Gordon Brown rivalry. So as a nerd of Labour Party, history uh that's kind of the one that i liked the best uh but this one this is when the the series hit its popular peak this is the one that played theatrically and uh the the one that most people have seen and you know it really is uh the ultimate new labor movie Uh, i just want to set the stage a little bit by reading from an essay that i i think i read from back in episode 153 this is an essay by the late historian tony judd uh, and it's called the gnome in the garden tony blair and britain's heritage heritage being in quotation marks so judd writes there is nothing contrived about tony blair's inauthenticity he came by it honestly as it were Old labor stood for the working class, trade unions, state ownership, and the nostalgic Little England socialism of William Morris and the Webbs. Blair has always seen it his first task to put all that far behind him. His labor is resolutely new. There is frequent mention of gender, but none of class. Blair has experimented with various catchy identification tags, Third Way, Cool Britannia, whose common message is youth and novelty. It is not quite clear what they actually mean. There is much talk of the need to be post-tribal and inclusive. In any case, it is their appearance that counts. In London, this seems to work. It is an international truism today that London is once again swinging. It is prosperous, bustling, cosmopolitan, a world-class financial and cultural mecca, etc. Among young Europeans, it is the place to be. And something odd has happened to Londoners themselves. They actually seem to believe everything they hear about their city, which may account for Labour's success there. The skeptical, mocking Cockney has been replaced by a town full of civic cheerleaders. No one seriously denies that Britain's capital city is overpriced and overcrowded, that its transport system is inadequate, its laboring class cannot afford housing, and its Victorian-era sewage system is dangerously dilapidated. But Londoners today happily entertain a form of cognitive dissonance. Yes, it's all true, they concede, but all the same, London is back. There is a superficial patina of prosperity about contemporary London, a glitzy, high-tech energy that makes other European capitals feel a bit dowdy and middle-aged, just as Tony Blair seems fresh and forward-looking when contrasted with some of his continental counterparts. But the gloss is two centimeters deep. The contrast between private affluence and public squalor is greater now than at any time I can remember. As for the often-repeated assertion that what has made London, and by extension, Britain, great again has been the rise of private initiative and the reduction of debilitating dependence on the state this is just can't londoners today like everyone else in britain may be employed in the private sector but they are as dependent on the state as ever skipping ahead a bit um a few paragraphs later judd kind of historically situates the new labor mentality in what i think is probably the most memorable part of this essay he says the english capacity simultaneously to invoke and to deny the past to feel genuine nostalgia for a fake heritage is, I think, unique. It amounts today to a countrywide boulderization of memory, and the remarkable alacrity with which poverty, industry, and class conflict have been officially forgotten and paved over, such that deep social difference is denied or homogenized, and even the most recent and contested past is available only in nostalgic plastic reproduction, is what makes Tony Blair credible. 
He is the gnome in England's Garden of Forgetting. Many British voters, when polled on the subject of their prime minister, claim to find him insincere and false. He is even, for some, dishonest, saying anything his hearers demand. But they accept him nonetheless, and anyway, see nothing better on offer. Even away from London, there is something about Blair that rings true. He is the inauthentic leader of an inauthentic land. Now, as I said, I really think this is the ultimate New Labour movie. It's a film that very much presents Tony Blair, I think, or largely presents him as he would have liked to be seen himself, as a kind of modernizing figure, as a progressive figure. But more importantly, I think, and uh, this is where the part about the film being pure ideology comes in. More importantly, I think that the way that this film conceptualizes progress very much encapsulates kind of the 1990s new, new labor idea of what progress was. Now, we'll unpack that a little bit more uh, in a moment, but I guess we should run through the plot uh, just a little bit. And there's not really much plot to run through. Well, the film opens on May 1st, 1997, the day of the election that would bring Tony Blair to Downing Street in a landslide victory. Elizabeth Windsor is introduced posing for a portrait. In a discussion with the artist, she makes clear without saying so that she is not a fan of this this new wave of modernizing fervor that is sweeping Britain in the form of Tony Blair. (laughs) Much like in Rush Hour, this is a kind of buddy opposites attracts movie, pitting two seeming opposites against each other and uh, finding out that maybe they have a little bit to learn from each other. On the one hand, you have Queen Elizabeth. She's been on the throne since the days of Winston Churchill. She is the embodiment of a certain stiff upper-lipped British affect and a symbol of tradition, of standing steady against the winds of ephemeral fashion. Yeah, and just as an example of how the film really holds your hand, just in case you didn't know anything about Queen Elizabeth II, the movie has the Queen Mother saying, you must show your strength, reassert your authority. You sit on the most powerful throne in Europe, head of an unbroken line that goes back more than a thousand years. So just, you know, the film is just filling you in in case you, uh, you didn't know this. And then in the other corner, Tony Blair Young, dynamic, inexperienced. Radical. (laughs) Yeah, the the first Labour Prime Minister in 18 years, and allegedly, it says in the dialogue, with the most radical manifesto in 300 years. I mean, th- this is this is all relative. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a scene early on in the movie which which sets up these stakes, and this scene is so funny. the The results are, have come in, and one of the queen's you know royal handlers or whatever is talking to her, and uh, she's saying, "Oh, Mr. Blair is awfully hard to read," and he's saying, "You know, yes, ma'am. I mean, on the one hand, his background is quite establishment. I mean, he had the same tutor as Prince Charles. You know, on the other hand, he's proposing you know the most radical reform of Britain's constitution in three years, which I think is just referring to like whatever half-baked reform of the House of Lords New Labour was proposing that I don't think they actually ended up doing it. I can't actually remember if New Labour promised to abolish the House of Lords, but they certainly didn't. Uh, and then I think devolution to uh, Scotland and, and Wales as well, where, where it was the other thing. So the stakes here are like, okay, yes, Tony Blair uh, is literally one of our own. He comes from the heart of Britain's establishment. He had the same tutor as Prince Charles, 
uh, but he wants to give the Scottish Parliament a bit more power. And his manifesto pledged to spend the exact amount of money as the Tory manifesto. But I mean, how do we read this guy? Well, it's also mentioned in that same patch of dialogue that the atmosphere at Downing Street is very informal now. Everyone, including the Prime Minister, talks to each other on a first-name basis. So he's not his honor, you know, he is Tony. So ultimately, like, the ideological dispute between these two is one of affect more than anything. Right. Everything that's at stake in this movie is about gestures. When Tony Blair comes to have his first audience with the Queen, there's some extremely hacky thing where, you know, he forgets what the correct way, like he doesn't know the etiquette, you know, the exact uh, sequence of words he's supposed to say to ask the Queen for permission to form a government. And of course, as we'll come on to in a second, the basic narrative tension in this movie, the entire stakes of this movie, concerns something entirely symbolic, which is the memorialization of Princess Diana. Diana and whether it's going to be public or a private royal affair. That's that's what's at stake here. What kind of ceremony happens? Uh, what kind of public gestures are going to happen or not happen? I think the movie wants you to think that Tony Blair wants to abolish the monarchy. It wants to make it seem as if there was a genuine possibility amid the backlash over the royal family's treatment of Diana uh, and the way that they sort of disappeared from the public eye after her sudden death. The film wants to make it seem like there was a mood in the country and potentially one in the Labour Party as well that could have led to the abolition of the monarchy and the creation of a British Republic, which, I mean, is absolutely not the case. But also it's implied that Tony Blair was kind of at the forefront of this. You know, he was leading the charge and then over this week he comes to realize what she means for the country and comes to realize that maybe he could learn a little bit from her and she could learn a little bit from him. So folks, if you didn't live through it, you certainly live through it in this movie. Diana dies. The the nation is in mourning. The world is in mourning. Bill Clinton, Nelson Mandela, they're all out there talking about the people's princess. Tony Blair becomes the mourner in chief. All of this is quite distasteful to Elizabeth Windsor, who, in addition to having personal dislike for Diana, finds this extravagant display of emotion to be quite tawdry. But nevertheless, as the flowers accumulate outside Buckingham Palace, accumulate so much that it makes the changing of the guards impossible, and no statement comes from the House of Windsor, an increasing sentiment comes that, well, if the monarchy isn't good for this, if the monarchy isn't good for comforting the nation in a time of distress, then what is it good for? And that is actually a pretty good question, because, you know, what we see of Queen Elizabeth in this movie is she watches TV. She does that a lot. She is always watching TV. Sometimes she goes on a picnic, and occasionally she signs a ghost-written letter offering condolences to some ambassador or other from some country or other. That's that's Those are kind of her duties. See, that's what I absolutely love about this movie, because it does portray the monarchy and, you know, the royal family as extremely out of touch, as extremely anachronistic, you know, as extremely disconnected from the popular mood. You know, they're up at a castle in Balmoral, Scotland, you know, while all this is playing out. They're engaging in these kind of ancient aristocratic rituals of, you know, grouse hunting or, or whatever, stag hunting. Saying slurs, a lot of slurs. <laughs> they say <laughs> that ancient aristocratic ritual. So so that, so that all of that is in the movie, but then the film, having uh, established all of that, then presents the populist alternative to it as 
Tony Blair and New Labor. And that is why I thought this movie was absolutely incredible. Now there's one scene that's kind of a throwaway scene, which I think actually contains the entire thesis of the movie. Do you know the one I'm talking about, Will? Uh, I'll probably, when you say it, go ahead. <laughs> I mean, every scene contains the thesis of the movie. <laughs> you're, you're right. It's not really a fair question. But there's a there's a throwaway scene, okay, where uh, the royals have been trying to distract themselves with this stag hunt. They call it stalking, they call it. I guess if you're landed gentry, this is how you deal with trauma is, you know, you... You kill something. You put on a weird tweed, you know, jacket and like a Sherlock Holmes cap and uh, you carry a shotgun around and yeah, you try to find an animal to kill. But so they've been, they've been hunting this, uh, this gorgeous stag and uh, I guess because they, they were too distracted by everything that's going on, they find out the stag has been shot by someone else. Uh, so the queen goes down to, you know, the hunting house or whatever and she asks to see the stag. You know, there's a royal handler or whatever there who takes her into this little you know sort of outbuilding where the stag is is hanging this is a perfect stag uh but the queen goes up and starts inspecting the wound and she asks this uh steward of the royal hunting house you know it seems to have been wounded she says and he replies well ma'am you know uh our, we got our guests in close we had them lined up just perfectly uh, but they they still they still couldn't get it. It was an investment banker from London, ma'am. Our stalkers had to follow the beast for miles to finish him off. Very sad. So what this scene is clearly saying in a very overt and heavy-handed way, particularly through this detail that the guy who failed to kill the stag properly was an investment banker from London, is that the enthusiasms of the liberal bourgeoisie, who seemed to be the ascendant class in Britain in the 1990s, you know, that's all well and good. But ultimately, you need the experience and wisdom of the old aristocracy, because we all know that if Prince Philip had taken that shot, uh, he would not have missed. <laughs> you obviously know my job better than I do. Well, you are my 10th Prime Minister, Mr. Blair. My first, of course, was Winston Churchill. He sat in your chair in frock coat and top hat. He was kind enough to give a shy young girl like me quite an education. I can imagine. With time, one has hopefully added experience to that education and a little wisdom better enabling us to execute our constitutional responsibility. Peter Morgan has made this thesis his kind of specialty. He also wrote a play called, I Believe, The Audience, which Helen Mirren performed in the West End, which depicts Queen Elizabeth in 10 scenes with all the prime ministers that have served under her, you know, from Winston Churchill to David Cameron. The thesis being that one thing that has remained steady as a rock through all this is the House of Windsor. And you may not like them, but, but they've been there and they've been sturdy. You know, having watched The Queen again, I don't think the movie makes a case for why that's true. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, she causes the nation a great deal of distress, <laughs> you know, failing at her only job which is to provide solace in what is perceived as a national emergency. And then at the end, she does a little five-minute speech, and, uh, you know, that doesn't even matter either, really. Could, could have done without the whole thing, frankly. Seems, <laughs> seems like Tony Blair actually had this under control. Right, but that's exactly why, you know, this movie is in some ways, I mean, it is a defense of the traditional aristocracy, but that's why this is a liberal movie rather than a conservative movie. That's why this mm. is a new labor movie rather than something that just kind of uncritically celebrates the royals because as, as we said I mean the film depicts the royals as kind of anachronistic and out of touch in many ways but at the end it swings on the idea that you know fundamentally they're still very necessary it's in that final dialogue scene between Elizabeth and Tony Blair where they heavy 
offhandedly allude to the fallout from the Iraq war, where she says to him something along the lines of, oh, well, you know, uh, pretty soon the backlash is coming for you. Pretty soon the tides of popular opinion will come for you. And I just hope you're going to be ready to handle it. She says words to those effect. And, you know, the 2006 audience can only think of how unpopular Tony Blair was at that moment for the Iraq war. I mean, it's a kind of nudge, nudge moment because, you know, the audience watching the movie would probably have been the liberal audience watching it probably would have been very displeased about Tony Blair. But then it's also saying, you know, what Tony Blair really needs to do in that situation is just like, be steady, be strong. Uh, Don't switch horses in midstream, you know, take that from Queen Elizabeth. Yeah. And the only other critical scene we should discuss in the movie is where one of Blair's uh, advisors or staff or something you know, starts joking about the queen, starts joking about the royal family. And, you know, this is this is firmly into act three of the movie. So Blair has made up his mind. He he likes the monarchy after all. And he really blows a gasket. He says, you know, when you get it wrong, you really get it wrong. That woman has given her whole life in service to her people. 50 years doing a job she never wanted. A job she watched kill her father. She's executed it with honor, dignity, and as far as I can tell, without a single blemish, and now we're all paying for her blood. All because she's struggling to lead the world in mourning for someone who who threw everything she offered back in her face, and who for the last few years seemed committed 24-7 to destroying everything she holds most dear. So there you have it, folks. This really is the ultimate new labor movie. It's a film structured around the idea that history itself is over and the only kind of progress that remains consists in the dialectic of old money and new money. Where progress consists in the liberal modernization of traditional institutions and traditional hierarchies with the goal not of overthrowing or transforming them, but rebranding and updating them with the ultimate goal of preserving them better. If there's a better encapsulation of what new labor was about than this film, uh, I'm unaware of it. The new labor era, I think, is best remembered as a one of a kind of triumphant resignation. That's partly captured in the passage I read earlier from Tony Judd. It was an era where everyone was encouraged to be excited about the fact that there was no longer a future you could look forward to that was going to be qualitatively different than the present. The era of democratic states even attempting large-scale reforms of the economy in particular was over. It was consigned to the dustbin of history. And what reform now consisted of was quite literally the etiquette among staffers at number 10 Downing Street and whether Tony Blair bowed in the correct way uh, when he went to see the Queen and whether Princess Diana got a public funeral or not. That was the dialectic of new labor. And in many ways, I think we're now just living with a kind of more sclerotic version of the same thing. The only difference between, you know, 1997 and today is that virtually no one is excited about it. So just as a final comment here, I want to say, you know, I think these movies are quite well done, uh, but something that has never Wait, worked. No, they're not. They're no, no, I don't accept that. I don't like any of these movies. And you know what I fucking hate about these movies, too? Are those scenes, all those scenes in all these movies where Tony Blair is sitting at the breakfast table with his wife and his kids and they're talking like they're normal people. You know, there are always those scenes where like they're folding laundry or they're they're cooking eggs. And he's like, oh, gosh, honey, I don't know if the queen likes me. I, goodness. I mean, she sure is the queen, isn't she? Darling, the, 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 the British populace voted for you in a landslide. You should be confident when you're meeting the queen. And they're not talking about what they're actually talking about, which is like 
oh, I ate a baby on Jeffrey Epstein's plane the other day. That's what they would actually be talking about if you ask me. Parody satire, parody satire. When I say they're well done, I just mean that they are competently executed films that are well acted and, you know, whatever. That's all I meant. Um, But the thing that has never worked about them for me is the fact that Michael Sheen plays Tony Blair. Michael Sheen plays Tony Blair uh, effectively in some ways. You know, he gets Blair's mannerisms. I think he's particularly good at capturing this kind of weird compulsory smile that Tony Blair always had, this kind of rictus grin that he always had on his face. But the problem is, at the end of the day, he's still Michael Sheen. And we like Michael Sheen. In real life, (laughs) Michael Sheen does not have Tony Blair's politics. And when I look at Michael Sheen, I don't think, oh, there's Michael Sheen as Tony Blair. I think... There's Michael Sheen, and that's a problem. Well, I mean, yes. You and I like Michael Sheen more than we like Tony Blair, but I mean, clearly what you want is somebody who captures the kind of fire behind the eyes, somebody who captures the evil of Tony Blair, the demonic, uh, <laughs> centrist warrior nature of, of Tony Blair. And obviously to do that would be to go against this movie's whole project, right? It would not exactly be the movie that it wants to be if it were Queen Elizabeth versus this monster in a suit. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely right, but that's still the film we deserve. <laughs> was long term. Yes. It was far reaching, yes. visionary in its scope, yes. and revolutionary in its effects. Yes. He had cast iron integrity and a raging passion. This was a man who had no fear in standing up for what he believed in, and he made no bones about how he felt. This was a man who publicly stated. No amount of cajolery and no attempts at ethical or social seduction can eradicate from my heart a deep, burning hatred for the Tory party. In today's political climate, where politicians are careful, tentative, scared of saying what they feel for fear of alienating a part of the electorate. We're under the excuse of trying to appear electable. All parties drift into a morass of bland neutrality. And the real deals, the real values we suspect, are kept behind closed doors. Is it any wonder that people feel there is very little to choose between? Bevan said, we know what happens to people who stay in the middle of the road. They get run down. So when people are too scared to say what they really mean, when they're too careful to speak from their hearts, when integrity is too much of a risk, it's no surprise that people feel disengaged with politics. There is never an excuse to not speak up for what you think is right. You must. Stand up for what you believe. But first of all, my God, believe in something. Because there are plenty out there who believe in grabbing as much as they can for themselves. Constantly sniffing around for markets to exploit, for weakness to expose. They won't say it, of course. They're too smart for that. No one says they want to get rid of the NHS. Everyone praises it across all parties. It is about as powerful a symbol of goodness that we have. So it would be too dangerous not to. But for decades now, there has nevertheless been a systematic 
undermining of its core values. This, this is beyond party politics. The Labour government arguably did as much damage to the NHS as any Tory or coalition Labour. This is about who we want to be as a nation and what we believe is worth fighting for. Too many people have given too much and fought too hard for us to give away what they achieved and to be left with so very little. Yeah. 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 Yeah.